What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Last week, around and got a triple-double. They get it to Fisher. He scores! Welcome to another episode of the Triple Double Podcast. I am Justin Goodrum, joined by Matt Thomas. What's up, man? Justin, good to hear you again, man. Good to be back for another episode covering the last dance. For sure. It's nice to have uh, something just to talk about um, in these quarantine times. Um, It's not live sports, but it's new sports content, so I'll take it. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're getting... A lot of it every every Sunday night with these these series here on ESPN. Um, yeah, for sure, man. Um, this uh, tonight's episodes were episodes three and four, um, so we got pretty much six more to go after this. So I'm plenty to look forward to. And as we um, discussed last week, um, we were originally planning on uh, making this a limited run, discovering. The last dance on ESPN, but um, Matt and I have decided to continuing um, to cover the NBA. So um, we're pretty much back, and we're pretty much on all our platforms. We're trying to relaunch everything, so um, we're available on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, and soon Stitcher. Um, if you want to give us feedback, contact us on triple the podcast at gmail.com and find us on Facebook. Uh, just type in Triple Double Podcast and we're there. Um, our episodes will be uploaded um, pretty quickly. You can find us on most streaming platform. And if you have any difficulty, we'll, we'll hook you up with the link. Um, but I'm, we're yeah. glad, I'm glad to be back. Glad to record on a continual basis. Yeah, and if I can just also insert, we're even more places now. We also have a YouTube channel. Uh, I know some people a lot of times, like myself included, sometimes I like to listen to things on YouTube as opposed to maybe a podcast app. So we are also downloading, uploading our episodes onto YouTube. So no real video component with that yet, but you can find our audio on there as well. And of course, we we appreciate your guys' support and any subscriptions or feedback that, that we get from you guys. Feel free to interact with us on there. For sure. Yeah, we're trying to be on as many platforms as possible. So um, check us out that um, pretty much any audio source you listen to all your audio content, um, we're going to be there. So, man, um, let's hop into these episodes and let's start with episode three. Um, And immediately what stood out to me was Rodman. Uh, the, The first scene that you see is him working out, him getting a good sweat in, and really... This episode encompassed what Dennis Rodman was to the Chicago Bulls um, specifically. So, Matt, I want to ask you this: you know, transporting yourself as a, you know, back in middle school, Matt Thomas. <laughs> um, what was your impressions <laughs> of Dennis Rodman? 
Yeah, right. <laughs> what was your impressions of Dennis Rodman? What did you think of him? And can you kind of compare him to what we maybe see now with like a Draymond Green or some other players that kind of work outside of the system or maybe kind of renegades um, compared to what Dennis Rodman was in the 90s? Yeah, you know, it's funny seeing Dennis Rodman as an adult now because as a middle schooler, you don't know as much about the off-court tabloid stuff. Um, to me, he was just a guy that always had awesome, interesting hair and worked really hard, hustled. I mean, I loved watching him play. He, he was uh, just exhilarating to watch him play and get rebounds. And I think it's, it's tough to come up with a modern-day comparison. You mentioned Draymond Green. And I do see that that being a good comparison in terms of how Draymond is was the catalyst for those Warriors title teams for sure. How Draymond could be up or down, like kind of kind of like that Rondo mentality as well. Like if if the team is in it to win it, if they are in contention, he is the fiercest competitor on the court. If they aren't in it to win it, it's easy for him to get thrown out of games, to be unfocused, to make unwise decisions. Those types of attributes you could also apply to Dennis Rodman. But I think the off-court persona and just how interesting of a person Dennis Rodman was, I don't know that there is a modern-day comparison today that isn't um, a, a superstar in the league that isn't already kind of at the, the forefront of discussion. I mean, can you think of anyone, you mentioned Draymond Green, which, which I just kind of highlighted some of my thoughts on that. Can you think of anyone else who is kind of that oddball character? Because for modern day NBA, I'm kind of drawing a blank on that, to be honest. I agree with you. Um, I don't think really in the NBA I can think of anybody. The only other comparison I would draw to is in football, maybe Marshawn Lynch um, or mm. even Bronkowski to a lesser extent. Um, yeah. Just, just two guys that, you know, like the party, play, you know, they kind of walk to the beat of their own drum. But, you know, when they get out, you know, on the football field specifically, they their, their will and their competitiveness is not to be questioned. It's really interesting with me just to see Dennis, in that 90s um, frame of reference, because with me, with Dennis Rodman, he intersected, as I discussed last week, three kind of different um, entertainment or sports, I guess, hobbies, not hobbies, but like things to watch on TV. I was a massive pro wrestling fan. I liked entertainment and I love sports. And with Dennis, he was in the pro wrestling. Like he loved yeah. Hulk Hogan. So he, he famously did not show up to the Bulls practice because he was at Nitro. And he, wanted to be, <laughs> he was there on Monday night wrestling. And who would have thought it? There was a huge match. This was the last season. It'll be interesting to see if they discuss this with Dennis Rodman and Karl Malone. The two of, you know, they were pretty much massive rivals. And then they met yeah. in a wrestling match in the summertime after the finals and Carmelo was a massive wrestling fan as well. So it, it kind of, it was the coolest time for me being a kid because it intersected all these worlds 
for me watching yeah, the, board, the titles, seeing exactly seeing Dennis just be this what you were saying, just this hard nosed um, grinder on the court, and then all of a sudden just see him um, on Monday nights on in WCW and wrestling was was pretty cool to see. So seeing this kind of party lifestyle, seeing Dennis pretty much do whatever he wants and really his teammates understanding that it, it was, you know, it took me back in time again. Um, I want to ask you too, what your opinion of in watching this, did you get enough information of how Dennis was operating with this team? Were you disappointed or were you satisfied of the information that we got regarding Dennis? Co um, coexisting with the Bulls in this last season. I'm hoping that there's more. You know, they had that scene where they were showing Dennis Rodman, they were showing Scottie Pippen some comments that Michael Jordan was making about Dennis Rodman. I thought that was a very good sequence, a very cool thing to see them reacting and nodding, acknowledging how truthful what Michael was saying was. But I feel like we missed out on a lot. I, I thought, I texted you as, as we were watching the episodes that I thought episode four was going to be the clash between Rodman and Pippen. And they, they touched on that very, very briefly. I mean, maybe a two-minute span. Didn't really get any comments from Scotty Pippen regarding Dennis Rodman in that regard. Uh, so I... I kind of felt like there's more to be explained there, and I, I don't know how it will come back, but I'm hoping maybe when they get to, like, Bulls versus Seattle in that 96 championship, I, I'm hoping that, you know, we'll, we'll hear more about that. What about you? I know you had talked about last week kind of, I hope they don't go too much into Dennis Rodman's origins. They definitely did that, as, as we kind of also were begrudgingly predicting um, did you, were, how did you feel about that? Were you satisfied with the Rodman coverage? I was, for me, um, they kind of intertwine that with Rodman with the Detroit rivalry. So they pretty much use the Bulls Pistons rivalry to explain how Dennis was important to the Bulls and how him, um, entering the first season with Chicago, how that was going to cause a lot of friction within the team. So the way that they framed it, I thought they did a pretty good job just because last year they put out a full documentary for Dennis Rodman called or Rodman for better or worse, which you can check out on ESPN plus an excellent documentary. So if you ever want to learn more and, really see the full origin story of Rodman. Check that out. Excellent documentary. But for me, I was pretty satisfied. But I can see some fans watching this if they want to learn more about Rodman, how they got a pretty clips notes version regarding his origin story. Like the guy, I mean, you watch the documentary, Rodman was working as, you know, parking airplanes. And he got, went to college late. I mean, he was not a highly yeah. touted player out of college. So I felt that was cut out just because, you know, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I mean, you put everything about ramen, you already had a ramen documentary, and if you don't, then you're leaving out a chunk of the story. So um, you're really yeah. put in a bad position. Let me ask you something. Um, 
because you have, I, I didn't watch the Dennis Rodman versus Carl Malone on, on the WCW stage. What was Rodman's personality like as a wrestler? Was he a good entertainer as a wrestler? Good question. So it was really Hogan's idea and also Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff uh, ran WCW at the time. And actually, if, you, if anybody's any wrestling fans, if you have the WWE Network looking for something to watch, there's actually a good documentary specifically about um, Rodman mm-hmm. and Carl Malone in a wrestling match. Um, so check that out. But to answer your question, Rodman kind of had a very laissez-faire attitude towards wrestling, mm-hmm. too. Pretty much like he was in basketball. Yeah, a lot of the uh, trainers in WCW would say Rodman would just kind of show up and, you know, with one practice and didn't really take it too seriously compared to Carl Malone, which he was training like a madman for the match. Um, so with Dennis, he had a little bit more wrestling experience than Carl Malone. He did some stuff with Hogan. Like he's all, he was always good friends with Hulk Hogan. They were boys. So mm-hmm. they always had that kind of chemistry together. And then when the faction, the NWO was rising to promise. This might be too much wrestling talk, but um, that, was, that was the most popular faction at the time in the 90s. Yeah. Rodman was a part of that. And as I just remember specifically in Chicago, just this huge elaborate entrance. You just see Dennis and the members of the NWO, they just look like rock stars. But really with Dennis, it, at the end of the day, when he was in a wrestling match, it didn't really matter. His chemistry, his this aura took over. Um, what was interesting too is that in one of the matches, he was afraid to take his shirt off. Um, mm. I think one of the wrestlers said, he was, I think Hogan said, take your shirt off. Like, and Rodman said, no, he felt kind of insecure about his body. And I don't think he took his shirt off until the end of the match. He wrestled in wrestled a t-shirt and, and just sunglasses and a do-rag and jeans. Um, but you're going to see Dennis is just, you know, a very physical uh, person. He's very lengthy. It really TV... Watching basketball doesn't really do him justice. See him in a wrestling ring, you really see how lengthy he is and how he um, can hold his own in the ring. I mean, he wasn't the greatest wrestler by any means. At the same time, he was pretty entertaining. Um, so to answer your question, he pretty much approached it like he did everything else. <laughs> he kind of did it his way. Uh, here, here's kind of my point in asking you that, and, and I find your answer interesting because I think there's this internal struggle with Rodman that I don't think was touched on a whole lot. Maybe we'll get more of it later, but you know, they say Rodman's a different cat. He needs a vacation right in the middle of the season, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They get into, and, and I don't think anyone would argue he's an interesting person, but I think they, they showed the scene of he's dating Madonna and she says, kind of tells him, express yourself, do what you want to do. I almost feel like there is this struggle with Rod, and, and of course we heard the the tragic tale of him being found in a car with a rifle. Thank goodness nothing more happened in that situation. I know I'm ashamed to admit I've watched Celebrity Rehab where Rodman has been an alcoholic. Uh, he he is too. an alcoholic. Has had problems with that. Uh, so so I feel for the guy, and I appreciate he's he has difficulty dealing with the pressure from his celebrity. But I also think the, the dying of the hair, the outrageous clothes he would wear, things like that. I think this is a man that was trying to act like he had a personality when really there wasn't, there wasn't much there. 
he he was very much trying to find out who he was. You know, you had comments from John Sally about him being so naive when he entered the league and the Pistons kind of showing him the way. And then he gets in with Madonna and that, that opens this whole thing up. I have always felt like Rodman is a very interesting character. For some reason, we are drawn to him. We relate to him. We root for him. And yet he has, you say, even though he's hired as a wrestler, which is almost entirely personality if, if you're going to be a star in wrestling, and you say he has kind of a blasé faire attitude towards wrestling. I, I think this is a guy who really struggles expressing himself. And I, I think that's why we see a lot of these difficult situations and him being a different cat. I don't know. Does that, does any of that make sense or is, is that an outrageous take? No, you're right. I think he was pretty much, I think, scared of being alone. Always wanted to be in a group. I think that's why, you know, he related to Hogan and the NWO, related to the Bulls, he related to the Bad Boy Pistons. I mean, these, you know, with those three entities I brought up, these were three kind of surrogate families, you know, um, people that were taking care of him. And I think you saw with even Dennis, just the loyalty that he has towards all of them to this day. You know, never said a bad word about Michael and never said a bad word about Scotty, really. Um, and just... Yeah. Same thing about Phil is just just an unwavering, you know, loyalty because they showed that to him. I mean, he, he comes off very, very genuine and like almost tears in his eyes, you know, really talking about them because he knows that he was a wild child. He knows under any other circumstance that a lot of other players would probably have a problem with him. And they, even though with Michael, he, he was like, all right, all right, dude, I guess you can go to Vegas. This is a, might be a bad decision, but you never saw Michael get are, you know, upset or want this guy off the team. They knew what they were getting into signing him. And I think playing against him in Detroit, I think earned the respect, even though they hated him, even though, you know, he was a nuisance with the bad boy Pistons, as we'll discuss later, at the end of the day, that respect was there um, as a competitor. So like Scotty said, like if he does his job, we have no problem with him. Like he can do whatever he wants once he gets on court. Um, I think the issues would come if he was not producing or he would just, his um, production deteriorated, there would be a massive problem. But since he always produced and always had their teammates back, I think it was pretty easy. Not easy, but I think it was a clear choice to let Dennis just be himself and really operate within the framework of the team, despite his antics off the court. Yeah. I think you're spot on. Uh, I don't know how much more you wanted to touch on Rodman. I have two other thoughts on that, uh, on sure. the Rodman section sure. specifically, if, if you want me to just dive into these. Um, one thing I was disappointed, they made a point of saying, what is what was it like when Rodman joined the Bulls? And they show from Phil Jackson's perspective when he meets Dennis Rodman, and says it went terribly the first time he met him. And then they just kind of gloss over that they had shown highlights from earlier of Rodman right, knocking Pippen down in midair, causing back injuries, migraines, thing, things like that. You know, those series were, were brutal between the Bulls and, and Pistons. And they didn't really go into what we had kind of talked about last week that I was hoping for with, was there any 
resentment between Pippen and Jordan having gone through the Bad Boy Pistons, uh, which is something else we'll talk about on this episode. Um, and, you know, the other thing, the last thing I'd say about Rodman, and I'll pass it to you for your thoughts, uh, I, I don't think we're going to get another player in the NBA, at least not, maybe not in our lifetimes, that goes to the gym and asks his friends to shoot hoops so that he can react off of rebounding and react off of the ball coming off the rim. I, I think that is so unique and fitting for 90s basketball, like maybe Oakley, Charles Oakley did things like that to practice and get better at his rebounding. But I just don't ever hear of kids doing rebounding drills like that, just bringing friends willingly rebounding for the sake of rebounding. Even when I was young playing basketball in my horrible basketball playing days, if you were the one caught rebounding all the time, you were one of the weaker guys on the team because you couldn't hit a shot to keep getting the ball back, getting your change, so to speak, from making your shot. So anyway, those are my, my kind of last thoughts on Rodman. Um, what do you think of that? So the interaction uh, and the, the kind of feedback that we got from Jordan Pippen or anyone else from him joining the Bulls. And then what do you think ultimately – like kind of of his legacy, I guess, could you see there being another defense and rebound specialist? I mean, the last one we had was maybe Tristan Thompson, but to a much lesser extent. Yeah. Um, I think with the, with your last question, I would say possibly the NBA always evolves and changes. And I think with players, it, it just kind of depends. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of, the NBA specifically is that if there's a player that's bold enough to really have an unapologetic game, like, you know, I would say Zion Williamson. Now I'm not saying he's Dennis Robin, not even close, but the point is, is that his game is unapologetic, right? He just, we never really seen anybody like Zion. He kind of does what he does. So I would say you never know. I would say it's doubtful that we'll see a player within the Dennis Rodman mold. But you never know. I was I wouldn't totally close it off. I think in terms of your criticism of Michael specifically in terms of that relationship, I agree with you. I think I would like I'm thinking I'm in the same boat as you. I, I would like a straightforward question asking Michael, hey, did you hold did you hold any resentment towards this guy? But at the same time, I think you know when he's on the team and they kind of discussed it a little bit in terms of hey this guy can play you know we needed some toughness i think overall we saw that but you're right i think they glossed over it and i don't know what this documentary it seems like they're going by each title too like they're discussing everything within the bulls dynasty as well even though this is called the last dance they're really talking about this entire dynasty so yeah so i think trying to be nice we might have to reserve reserve judgment um, when we get to the, you know, the Seattle season and the first um, Utah Jazz series to really get some more details. But I would say I, if I were just to be nice, I would <laughs> maybe hold off your criticism until the end of the documentary. But I think what you said is it's fair game um, if we don't see that fully addressed. So I think your criticisms are warranted, but you I mean, in terms of what they're doing with this documentary, it's hard pressed that they wouldn't discuss it, but we'll see what happens. 
Yeah, maybe they just didn't get any interesting quotes. Uh, maybe it was just simply a matter of all the guys kind of said, well, we know Dennis is great at what he does. He fits into that kind of third wheel role as as he put himself. Um, so maybe, maybe there was just nothing interesting to take. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, in watching last week's episodes and this week's episodes, I'm not, I'm not sitting there disappointed in what I'm watching. So me the either. criticism I, I give is, is very, very minor <laughs> because overall I, I'm loving reliving the nineties bulls ultimately. Um, yeah. So did you have anything I, else on Rodman or did you want to move somewhere else? Yeah. I wanted to move towards uh, Doug Collins. Um, yeah. This, this was probably my favorite part of the documentary for me. And I don't know if you agree, really, Doug Collins doesn't get enough credit, and what's weird is again transporting myself as just a you know a teenager, and not even a teenager, a preteen in middle school watching the Bulls dynasty. Doug Collins was always a TV analyst to me. Um, I never really yeah, knew his history with the Bulls, so not until when I became a teenager and, a, and an adult. So it's really seeing his footage of him, seeing him just be carefree, pretty much be. Um, and I, I said this to you off the air, Matt. He reminded me a lot of Steve Kerr, pretty laissez-faire, pretty much um, supportive of Michael. Wanted to highlight yeah. Michael, highlight the offense of Michael, make sure he was the prominent threat on the team, and they had success. And just to see him with the team to pretty much be loose, I, I really liked that. And it was very really fascinating to watch, to see him to see him cuss, and to see his real personality. Um, it was really refreshing, and probably so far, um, one of the highlights of this entire documentary. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think Doug Collins has always, I think in part because of his run with the Bulls, uh, in part because of other teams he's coached, he's always had this reputation as being a great coach for young players. They talked about how his offense revolved around getting Michael Jordan the ball, which ultimately Jerry Krause didn't think was the right move. The interesting thing I thought was, and maybe this is just hearsay, or maybe this is the documentary kind of glossing over things, I don't know. I had always heard that Michael Jordan was the reason that Doug Collins was run out of town. And maybe indirectly he was, but it really did seem like Jordan loved Doug Collins. And with the image that we're getting of Jerry Krause, it really was just his decision, like, no, this is the way I want to go with this team. Let's go ahead and make this move and, and get Phil Jackson. But backtracking to what you said, I, I'm with you. I've always loved Doug Collins as an analyst. I do remember him coaching the Wizards, and I do remember reading articles about that, kind of like almost like Michael Jordan was passing in the olive branch, so to speak, making peace from his time as the Bulls head coach, when he got let go, Jordan thought he'd be a great coach to bring in for the Wizards when he made his return to the Wizards. Uh, so the guy has had a fascinating career and has coached in, in some of the most interesting spans in NBA history. I mean, even up until he coached, I, rem I remember the uh, 76ers when Iguodala was the star player on, on those 76ers teams. Uh, granted, you know, minor success almost everywhere he went. He's kind of the guy that would get his team going for a year or two and then did have that hard work ethic, kind of run you to death kind of coach that 
maybe made him run out his welcome with his own players eventually. But it did seem like the Bulls, Michael Jordan specifically, loved their time with Doug Collins. It didn't seem like they really wanted him to go. And a very controversial move, as they mentioned uh, very clearly in the documentary, when Krause fired the guy that got them to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, I, I agree. Very reminiscent of Mark Jackson with the Golden State Warriors and Steve Kerr taking over. Very similar. But, you know, that move worked. And I think that's kind of interesting, a theme where it's a tug of war in this documentary where Jerry Krause is this, you know, he's probably the antagonist of this entire documentary. But, yeah, he's responsible for putting this team together. And let's keep it really. It, I think now you see a lot more front office people. Um, get the credit for putting teams together compared to the 90s, which they didn't. Like, no one, I mean, Trey Krause, if he were to keep the team together for another, I don't know, two, three seasons, I doubt he would get that much credit, to be honest, even now. Just that, that Bulls dynasty was such, I don't know, it, it really encompassed that entire decade that any front office people, um, they were kind of pushed to the side. And like, he, from this documentary, um, without really hearing kind of, you know, his side of things, it, it was just impossible to really get that credit. I think it was just a massive struggle in his mind. Um, I wanted to case ask you also. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, case in point, look at all the accolades that Sam Presti from the OKC Thunder gets as their GM, sure. and they <laughs> haven't won a title in OKC. I imagine comparing that to all the success Jerry Krause had. I mean, I think we can, we can see where this documentary is going and talking about how absurd the exit was. I mean, they stated that clearly from the beginning of the documentary. But I think overall in these, at least episodes, you know, three, where we didn't get much of the heckling from Pippin on the bus where we left off last time, uh, in, in this episode, kind of maybe three through nine span, maybe there's going to be some redemption for Jerry Krause because I do think he deserves a, a ton of credit for the job that he did with these Bulls. And, and I think we made that clear last episode we recorded too. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting. We'll see. So far, he's pretty much get his, his name is being drugged through the mud so far, but we'll see what happens. we got six more episodes to go. Um I guess shifting a little bit towards really the, the framework of the coaching tree in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was built around the rivalry with the Detroit Pistons and with Jerry Krause wanting to eventually get Phil Jackson um, as the head coach. And it was really built around, you know, the Bulls not being able to get over the hump and Krause mm -hmm. seeing Phil Jackson as that eventual um, lead player. I want to ask, lead coach, excuse me. I want to ask you, this came to my mind right now, why didn't Krause pick Tex Winter to be the head coach? He was more experienced. He was the inventor of the triangle. It just crossed my mind. Phil Jackson had limited experience being a head coach. And Tex Winter, here he has, it seems like a very knowledgeable basketball mind. Why, why wasn't he the coach of the Chicago Bulls instead of Phil Jackson? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, and I, I do not know the answer to that off the top of my head. My guess would be that Phil Jackson was bought in, and maybe 
Phil Jackson being a little bit closer to the player's age, a little bit younger, maybe he could keep the morale of the team a little bit higher, uh, being able to relate to the players a little bit better. And maybe it could have been a personality thing. It could have been that Tex maybe didn't want to take the head coaching job. Maybe he was, he was at a point where he just wanted to be that loyal assistant coach. You know, that's, that's all speculation, unfortunately, on my part. Gotcha. Um, if you don't mind, I think what we're going to discuss with Phil Jackson and the Bad Boy Pistons, pretty much they bleed into each other with episodes three and four. Um, yeah. So we might do some jumping around here. But I, I think since we're talking about Phil Jackson specifically, you might as well talk about him. Um, pretty much they discussed Rodman and Phil Jackson's relationship. Um, it was a little bit rocky, mm-hmm. but eventually they were able to really understand each other because of Phil Jackson's um, NBA history and how he, he was an enigma and they called him a hippie. And they even said he took yeah. acid. Very much a unique player outside of the regular NBA framework. What do you think of the Phil Jackson footage? What do you think of his rise to prominence? And now with Phil, he's his really reputation Considering what he did with the Knicks is not really the best, but this is when he was within his prime, really. Um, probably more than even when he was with the LA Lakers. I mean, this was prime Phil Jackson. He was being showered accolades as one of the most legendary coaches um, in the NBA at this time. What was your thoughts of seeing all the footage of him? Yeah, it was kind of interesting that Phil Jackson is, or during his career, was kind of the anti athlete. With all the stuff that you had just mentioned, I mean, most people don't think of athleticism when they hear the term hippie, and yet Phil Jackson was an incredible athlete. They also touched on the appreciation that Phil and Dennis both had for Native American culture and how that was a big bonding point for the two of them. So I think the the real main thing that we got to see through that is how Phil Jackson is able to connect very, very intimately with his his entire team. I mean, specifically with star players, because you have to keep those guys' morale up to carry the rest of the team at times. But I think you saw really how charismatic Phil Jackson is and also just how, I guess, intimate he could become uh, with his players and kind of getting into their their psyches and uh, finding out what motivates them in really kind of an untraditional way. I mean, we think of coaches as like guys that make you line up and run ladder drills or, you know, run you until you're, you're throwing up and things like that. And not to say that Phil Jackson didn't have those guys working hard. He certainly did, but it seemed like there was another layer to him that, I struggle to think of of coaches who had that kind of level of of depth to them. That's kind of what I took away from the Phil Jackson origins and kind of that uh, merging with Dennis Rodman in this documentary. Gotcha. Um, Shifting towards, you know, his ascension, him being an assistant coach under Doug Collins, which is a very, and I would say, rare fact to know, and I think everybody just kind of assumes Phil Jackson was just the coach of this team forever. Um, yeah. And just seeing, seeing kind of his 
you know, rise to prominence where the Bulls struggled to get past the, the bad boy Pistons. I want to kind of shift to that. And there's another documentary um, with the Pistons specifically. You want to know about Detroit <laughs> and this and this team, uh, check out the 30 for 30 on the bad boy Pistons. It's called the bad boys. So if you want to check that out it's on ESPN plus as well, an excellent documentary. You want to know how badly Larry Bird hates Bill Lambeer. Um, watch that documentary. Yeah. Even to this day, if you saw Beer Lambeer, you know, in a bar, despite whatever social distancing, you still probably want to punch him in the face. So um, that robbery yeah. is never going to die. Um, watching this footage of the Pistons specifically, this is another team that really doesn't get their due. And I think for a lot of young people, um, probably you know, including myself until I would say, I don't know, the last 15 years, didn't know too much about this team in NBA history. Usually, you know, you hear about the Lakers and the Celtics, um, and then, of course, the Bulls, and then you kind of get into the 2000s. But really, the Pistons really get left off that list, and this was a legendary team. I mean, Michael Wilbon yeah. talked about it on Center. This is a team that, if you think about it, they beat the Lakers, they beat the Bulls, and they beat the Celtics, all within pretty much close to their prime. And yeah. they abused them. I mean, this wasn't a finesse team. They roughed them up and they beat the crap out of them. So what was your yeah. thoughts on kind of seeing a little bit of the bad boy Pistons? Wasn't the entire thing, again, it's kind of like the Robin issue. Um, we couldn't go too much into it because they have the whole documentary devoted to the Detroit Pistons. What was your thought on seeing it? Yeah, it kind of, you know, just as you were, you were talking about the Pistons, another thing I'd add is uh, Isaiah Thomas is one of the first guys I think that's revered as having like incredible handles as a point guard. And sure. yet to, to the point of what you're saying, I, and, and granted the Pistons, you know, I was, I was two, three years old when they were making their run. So I did not see them in the moment, but I, I cannot think of many Isaiah Thomas highlights when I think about the Pistons and, and how great uh, that that run that they had was, and and how talented they were. I mean, especially that backcourt of Dumars and, and Isaiah Thomas. I mean, they were a top backcourt in the league. Uh, and like you said, I mean, the the legacy is there. They shut the door on Larry Legend. They shut the door on Magic Johnson and and the guys who had dominated the '80s. Um, but I think. Uh, I was happy with the coverage. I think they, they did enough there. Like you said, there is a lot of content on that. Another thing that I was thinking about is, as I was watching all these highlights and guys getting thrown while they're going up for a layup, uh, just a lot of things that, of course, we would consider cheap shots, things that would never happen in, in today's NBA, certainly. And it was amazing to me how these were all just called as personal fouls back then. And that, you know, you <laughs> right. can say what you want about the Pistons, and they certainly earned that name of being the bad boys. Uh, they made Robert Parrish freak out uh, in, a, in a Celtics game, uh, freak out on Bill Lambeer, probably deservedly so. But at the same time, you can call them all that stuff, and they were still playing within the rules of the league at that time. If the league could have had much swifter action if they truly were worried about Jordan getting injured, Magic getting injured, Larry getting injured. They could have 
especially after like during an off season, they could have made stricter rule changes. And ultimately that did happen later on in the nineties, I believe. Uh, but it is just interesting to me that they get this bad rap and yet they are playing technically within the rules of the league at the time. I don't know. Is, is that kind of a, a silly thought? I'm not saying they weren't dirty, but it's kind of like if the ref is getting away with letting you put an elbow in Jordan's ribs or, you know, whatever you're doing, that is an advantage to you to do it. It's true. I mean, if this was such a massive issue, I mean, wouldn't you take it up with the Players Association? Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's something That's something I would certainly do. <laughs> um, I mean, there's... I mean, I think at a certain point, like, yes, you have to point the finger at them, but can you completely blame them for doing what they did? Like, they obviously had oh, no. success with it. I don't think so. That's why I think... I'm talking about kind of the other players, you know, had a huge problem. With oh, them. yeah, like, for sure. I mean, if you were, if they're truly outraged, I mean, this is something that you would take to the commissioner and take to the league. Hey, this is getting too violent. Like, this is turning into, you know, you know, football. <laughs> and this is basketball here. But, you know, I think it was kind of within the rules of battle. I mean, they hated him. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't enough to, to take drastic measures and change the rules within the league. So I think it was, they were the villains. They were the, I think they kind of, how do I say this? They were habitual line steppers. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. At the same oh, yeah. time, it, it wasn't enough to warrant them being, I think, an embarrassment on the league. As much as Larry Bird hates Bill Lambier, I think it's within, within competition. I don't think it's a thing of them about destroying the, the reputation of basketball. I think it's just been it's, really just an annoyance. Yeah, and it's an undeniable part of NBA lore now. Because now is. all these players from the 80s, there's that sense of pride that I played in the 80s or even I played in the 90s when it was rough physical basketball. I mean, it is a part of NBA lore. I think there's kind of a, a weird like external praise that it caused for the league as a whole that like I survived and played in that era. Yeah, I agree totally. And it's just something that I think a lot of NBA players now can't relate to just because how yeah. physical it was. And again, I think another highlight of this documentary is again, Michael Jordan. I think just seeing him just, just be able to talk about this freely. It really reminds me, you know, they talked about him winning the first title against magic. And, you know, when he won the title, he was able to hug it. And his players were just astonished at the emotion on his face and the shock. And I think through his entire career, that's kind of been the thing of his, is just kind of keeping his real personality under wraps and not letting even his teammates really see who really he truly is 100%. Um, I think they saw it somewhat with him gambling and kind of, you know, busting, you know, his other teammates chops, but to really get into the psyche and to really see how specifically the handshake of when the Bulls finally beat the Pistons and just Detroit walking off the floor and not shaking hands and how that infuriates Michael to this day, the anger and just how mad he gets and just how, you know, him cursing and just how competitive he was. It, it's refreshing to see. It, it, you see a genuine yeah. Michael Jordan 
And I, and I think, again, I think like you were, this might be a thing where I think Michael's wrong regarding like this documentary is going to probably make him a lot more relatable to a lot more players in this day and age, because I think he had more just this godlike aura about him where he's pretty much not that relatable. But you see in his documentary, he was very much human and very much went through a lot of emotions of frustration and anger um, and just really just acting like a regular person um, just going through immense challenges through his entire playing career. Yeah, and I think to a lot of people, this illuminates an era of the struggling Michael Jordan that a lot of people didn't see a whole lot of. Uh, even myself, a Bulls fan through the 90s, don't really remember this whole narrative of, well, Jordan can score a lot, but he never he doesn't have what it takes to be Larry or Magic Johnson. He doesn't have what it takes to lead a team to a title. We got to see that. We got to see Jordan say, that really ate at me when people made those comments, when people published that stuff in their, in their editorials. Um, let's, let's touch on, if, if you don't mind, a little bit more that walkout from the Pistons, because I think this documentary, you know, we knew about the Bad Boy Pistons. We had content about the walkout from that Bad Boy Pistons documentary. I think what we got to see tonight was a little bit more of a reaction from the walkout that we hadn't seen yet to this point, which is we had very clearly, they said, do you want to hear what Isaiah said about this to Michael Jordan? And instantly, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't, I don't remember the quote off the top of my head, but he, before even seeing the clip was like, I don't believe whatever Isaiah says. I mean, you can show me whatever he was wrong doing that etc which we know is is how this went um and i was i was a little bit disappointed as i I was texting to you that isaiah in those comments that they showed to jordan his defense in my opinion was just as cowardly as them walking out (laughs) of that game but his defense was if you looked at other teams this is what they were doing this is what the celtics did to us I don't know that I totally buy <laughs> that that that's um, what every single team was doing. The Celtics, maybe. Um, what were your thoughts on on what the the kind of extra content we got around the walkout? Yeah, um, I'm there with you. I know Larry Bird for sure wouldn't <laughs> would take exception to that. Um, and I think with Isaiah, he's always kind of the politician. I think you see that within the Bad Boys documentary too. I think Rick Mahorn, Rodman, and um, Bill and Beer are the, the bad guys. I mean, you really see them be honest. And really, I mean, you, you were to interview them, they would just say, yeah, we walked out, we're pissed. <laughs> like, at those guys. Um, but I think with Isaiah, he's, you know, he's always smiling. Always, I mean, he kind of has kind of this fraudulent attitude about him. Um, yeah. I think if you look at kind of the NBA kind of luminaries and legends, um, I don't think he gets the love compared to a lot of players. Um, really, as you were even talking about his playing skills, like no one really brings up Isaiah Thomas. I mean, he's not held in that much high regard, in my opinion, just through his actions as, um, you know, in the front office and him as a coach. Um I think 
overall, I, I am, I'm right there with you, Matt. I think his reasoning, what was going on, I think was pretty phony in my opinion. Um, and I think, you know, they were mad that they lost. That's, I mean, they were, this is just oh, be real. Sure. At, the same, I, at the same time, I think kind of that, you know, attitude really came to back to haunt him. And I wonder if they'll talk about this in next week's episode um, with the dream team. I mean, that's always a thing. He never oh, yeah. made, you know, they not on, not on the dream team. And so we'll see if they discuss that next week. Um, and that's again, another, I think another, another prominent issue with this documentary is that, you know, there's already kind of documentaries about certain major things. So it's, I think with this director, I think it's a battle of trying to rehash things that people may have already seen, but at the same time, I mean, this documentary got massive ratings on ESPN. So that tells me that there's a massive audience that may not know about this stuff, um, that even though we're hardcore fans, you know, they probably, you know, never seen the Raman documentary, never seen the Bad Boys documentary, don't have that much context or history. So it really is a tightrope that I think this director's walking as to presenting this information to um, a whole new fan base at the same time kind of respecting those hardcore basketball fans because with the OJ documentary, there's some comparison. Like that one was a lot of context around kind of the history of racial relations in California. They're really able to set the scene of why things happen with the OJ Simpson trial. Here, um, you're really kind of going into really just the minutia and history of the Bulls dynasty. Um, I think for us, for me particularly, I would like to see more of maybe the environment of the league, more of just kind of the um, the importance. I think they talked about it a little bit, but more of the importance of what Michael meant to the NBA specifically and sports. Um, so I think kind of having paint that picture a little bit more would help as opposed to kind of kind of discussing these stories we've heard before, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, and here's my prediction. I think. I think you're spot on with what you just said there. And I think this, the director is making sure that this documentary at the end of the day, when someone watches this 20 years from now, this is going to be a great standalone documentary. So that's why he's, he's glossing over. And then that's one of his jobs as a director. He has to provide some context. So I think you're right on point with what you just said. My prediction is that, we know the, the film crew and the raw footage was in that last season. So I think we're going to get episodes 9 and 10, or maybe it's episodes 8 and 9, and then tie a bow on everything on episode 10. I think that's where you and I as hardcore fans are maybe going to be a little bit more satisfied with the info we get, with the raw footage we get. I'm, I'm hoping that they really kind of keep going, providing context, Still great episodes, in, in my opinion. I'm still very satisfied with this product, this this documentary as a whole so far. But I think we can hope for maybe the last two to three episodes getting that extra raw footage and really, really honing in on that last season. That's kind of my prediction, given that I, you know, I'm not Bill Simmons. I didn't get to watch this documentary in its entirety before we got on uh, to starting this series. Yeah, I feel you. Um, again, I'm pretty, I'm satisfied so far just because, in my opinion, the footage they've shown of the of the season we we have never seen before. So 
I mean, you're getting what you've wanted in terms of expectations. And also, for the most, the main event was seeing Michael and Guarded and seeing him really give his honest opinion. So, in that two aspects, I'm pretty satisfied. I was, and I yeah. think also, again, the Doug Collins stuff, the, the Rodman story about going to Vegas for more than 48, for more than 48 hours. Um, I think just little tidbits here or there, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. I think just the astronomical expectations of this, um, I, I'll be lying if I say I wasn't a little bit disappointed, but by no means do I think this is a bad documentary. I think they've done a, a phenomenal job so far. Um, I'm just hoping for that kind of killer episode where it's just like you're just learning all these facts you never knew before, and we just yeah, have just not mind that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I totally agree. Was there um, anything else you wanted to kind of touch on before we kind of hang it up for tonight? Yeah, I got I got one more thing. Uh, sure. At the very end of episode four, we really, really hit the fast forward button on a big moment in history in the NBA. And they do mention this a little bit. But I think one of the narratives that I was looking at, and, and one of the things that's, that's kind of like poetry in the NBA, is you get to see all these quote-unquote, heroes' journeys. You get to see Larry Legend come into the league, Larry Bird come into the league, pave his path to winning titles on the Celtics. You get to see Magic walk into a title-ready Los Angeles Lakers team. Uh, you get to see Isaiah in them. You get to see them not congratulate the Bulls, etc. We then go into the Bulls finally get their moment. They get past the Pistons, and it's almost like when the Red Sox beat the Yankees in 04, I believe it was. And mm -hmm. it was really like, even though they had the World Series, I believe against the Cardinals after uh, that all went down, it was really like the World Series was the Yankees versus the Red Sox. And like once the Red Sox beat that, it, it felt like there's no way they're losing the title. It, it, kind of the same thing with the Bulls-Lakers. Uh, I'm sorry, the Bulls-Pistons. Once the Bulls got past the Pistons, Yes, they dropped game one, but then they really fast-forwarded. We got, I was counting, you know, two highlights of game two, I think one highlight of game three, and one to two highlights of, of the next two games after, just showing that, you know, the, the Bulls gave them basically what I believe uh, No Dunks calls the gentleman's sweep, where they let them win a game, and then they just dominated Magic. They showed Pippen guarding Magic being the key in game two, and that just never let up. So, so one thing I was thinking about was one of the things that we miss out on in NBA as NBA fans is we didn't get to see Michael Jordan get to pass the torch. And maybe there wasn't anyone worthy of getting the torch passed to them. I think, you know, you and I talked before we recorded that some people regard the all-star game where you had the Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant duel as sort of, I guess, a weak passing of the torch because you did have that Lakers run afterwards. But I imagine just, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, really. This is kind of a, a what if, what aboutism, I guess. But I imagine that Jordan plays in 99 and maybe the Spurs with Tim Duncan in that lockout year beat Jordan and the Bulls instead of the Knicks that year, you know, all hypothetical. Or maybe... Maybe Jordan wins again that year. Maybe uh, the Lakers in 2000, maybe they get Shaq and 
maybe rather than Lakers 76ers, maybe it's Lakers Bulls, and Jordan gets to pass that trophy on to Shaq, who is the head of Lakers. I don't know. I just I feel like as an NBA fan, it's one of the things that that makes Jordan's legacy so cool is that he had that last shot in Utah. But I think the downside of that that I never really thought about until seeing all these eras in this documentary is that we never get that passing of the torch, the torch from Jordan. And maybe he's not the type of guy to do that, but he is a professional. They did show he shakes hands with the Pistons every year that they beat him. That's why he's disappointed about the walkout on their part. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on those comments? Or if not, I'm done rambling. <laughs> no, I feel you. Um, I agree with that. I think mostly it's just because of this, you know, I, do you want to make Jerry Krause the bad guy? It's, it was just kind of ripped. It was ripped too soon. I mean, Jordan retired, hit that shot over Utah. He kind of goes into the, you know, into the sunset. At the same time, we have the lockout season, and there's really no – it's not really resolved. Um, we just have that season that seems like a – I don't know. The best we can describe it is that it was at the beginning of a long reign of dominance for the San Antonio Spurs. Um, that's really the, the best we can do in that situation. And then, of course, the Lakers dynasty begins there. It seems like the league – Really went through kind of a, hard, a really rough transition because Jordan retired, yeah, a lockout happened. Yeah. yeah, and and all of a sudden, really, um, the league wasn't really, I don't know, I think fans were still reeling over the loss of Jordan, but I think a lot gets made about fans not embracing Kobe as the next, but I think that goes to Shaq as well. Um, I just think, really, as both of them, you would think these, you know, you have these two personalities, and they would really take the league to really the next um, level. But they really, they didn't. I mean, they won those three titles, and then there was a lot of like, what's what's going to happen with the league? I mean, there was a lot of doubt, even though you had a you had a you know a three three peat, <laughs> three titles in a row, and almost four, and yet the league yeah. just felt like there was so I think. In terms of passing up the torch, I think, you know, you could put that blame on Reinsdorf and Krause, too, just because I think if you're right, man, you would have seen it, at least in those two seasons, just at least Jordan's blessing. Like, he's a competitor. Like, hey, you beat me. It might haunt me for the rest of my life because he's just a hardcore competitor, but you beat me. Like, you get the spoils of victory. Like, magic, the same thing. It's like you can tell, like, hey, I don't have it anymore. There's this new guy, uh, it, you know, I'm bummed out I lost, but, you know, it's Michael's turn now. And I think with Mike, with um, with Michael, he would have been in Matt's position. He would have felt, hey, you know, Kobe beat me. It's Kobe's turn now. It's Kobe and Shaq's turn. They're going to carry the league, and I'm going to run up to the sunset. But I think through circumstances where we weren't able to see that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think, just, just kind of an interesting thing because – it, we had this, this long stretch of time, and I already touched on this, so I won't go through it all again, but all throughout the 80s, I mean, you have Larry and Magic passing back and forth to each other, this debate about who's better, et cetera. You have Bad Boy Pistons, smooth transition into the Bulls, then they really take over as the definitive champs. Uh, so it's just, just kind of interesting that 
Yeah, exactly. Like when, when Jordan leaves, rather than there being a smooth transition, it, you kind of get this vacuum that even though the Lakers were dominant in the early 2000s for their three-peat, once that team disbands and is over, there's really kind of this weird phase where we have that very unlikely Detroit Pistons team that knocks them off. And then there's kind of this weird stretch where people are debating things like, is Steve Francis the next best player in the league? And <laughs> we get yeah, to really kind of, uh, kind of a dark age in the NBA where that vacuum of Jordan being gone is really, really felt, in my opinion. Well, um, as we kind of leave it off, I mean, look at, look at the pressure of Vince Carter, right? That's when I'm done contest. Yeah. I mean, he was labeled the heir apparent, and then, you know, things happen with him, Grant Hill. Um, it's just multiple guys that are declared this next, you know, heir apparent. I mean, there's there's really zero guarantees that Kobe was going to be the man. I think people guessed it, but people were – they were really – Peggy many guys. It was Tracy McGrady. It was this guy or that guy. It was it was many people that were in that position that never lived up to the hype. It's just so much pressure. And I think looking back on it, um, it this documentary really made me appreciate Kobe a lot more. It's very weird um, because just seeing their mannerisms, specifically like '96, the the tail end of Jordan's Bulls run, it is eerily similar to Kobe's, and just you can see the framework Kobe took from Michael Jordan. Like, it wasn't just an impersonation. Like, he adopted his lifestyle, like you can tell, um, just down to yeah. the letter. And it's just, it's interesting, again, to see kind of players, you know, have that, when once with Kobe's passing, um, really, you know, appreciate Kobe's mentality where this is the origin. I mean, <laughs> this is where he gets it from right here. I mean, this is the, this is the blueprint, the framework, the um, – playbook that Kobe followed to the letter to the T and this is really the origin story so to really praise Kobe is to praise Michael I mean they're one in the same yeah very very similar I mean you you could it's it's a cheap way of saying it but Kobe Bryant is the best Michael Jordan impersonator of all time I know no (laughs) doubt about that and you even have YouTube highlights oh man are you there looks like we lost Matt We're going to try to get him back and wrap things up. We'll see you in a second. Looks like we got uh, Matt back. I'm sorry about the technical difficulties. It's the uh, magic of Skype. (laughs) If you ever listen to any kind of podcast, um, that just uh, tends to happen with uh, with this program. But um, I think with that, we'll uh, wrap things up for tonight. Um, So, again, if you want to get in touch with the show, we're going to be available on YouTube, um, Spotify, iTunes, soon Stitcher, um, Anchor, um, pretty much all your podcasting platforms. Check us out there. Um, Matt, do you have any other final thoughts? No, man. I think it was a great episode, three and four. Thank you all for listening. We'll look forward to talking to you guys again next week. All right. Thanks, man. And um, thank you for listening to the Triple Double Podcast. Um, Enjoy the last dance, and we will see you next week.